prayer that works. How would you like to pray and know that prayer works? An article in Newsweek magazine entitled Talking to God claimed that 78% of Americans pray at least once a week. 57% pray daily or more often. 91% of women and and 85% of men pray at some time. But does, does prayer work? That's the question. And how do we know? How do we know? Have you ever felt that God didn't answer your prayer? Anybody? You prayed, it just it didn't seem to be answered. You pray and your, your prayer seemed to bounce and ricochet off ceiling and walls, but no one hears. Are you praying for yourself or are you praying for someone else? Intercessory prayer is to plead or make a request for someone else. Praying for others. Is it important that we pray? Can we really, can we really make a difference? St. Augustine thought so. He said this, is in your notes. He said, without God, we cannot. Without us, God will not. Without God, we cannot. Without us, God will not. God waits for us to ask. He waits for us to ask. He changes us, and he changes circumstances. He changes people, and he even changes history. God's answers to prayer include yes. It's my favorite. Yes. No. My least favorite. And wait. Yes, no, and wait. Does prayer work? Yes, and no. There are some prayers that God does not answer and some prayers that don't work. But there are some prayers that actually do work. And if I needed God's help, I usually need his help every day. I would want to know what works when I pray. Wouldn't you? Probably want to know that. Last week, we looked at a passage in Luke 11 that talked about prayer. And included those, in those guidelines were boldness and persistence. At the end of the message, we looked at the first part of Luke 18, where Jesus talked about, he said, ask and keep asking, seek and keep seeking, knock and keep knocking. Today, we're going to look at the next part of Luke 18 and see what Jesus teach, teaches about prayer that works, prayer that works. I'd like you to turn with me to Luke 18. It's on page 851 in the Bible in the rack in front of you. You can follow on projection as well. I'm going to be reading from Luke 18. By the way, I have, I have the New International Version from a few years back. They made some changes. So if you look at the version in the rack in front of you, it has some minor differences. Don't worry about that. Uh, They've made some changes. I don't like them, but that's, that's just me. So anyway, this is a new international version. Luke 18, 9 to 14. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. 
I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. This is a parable or a story that illustrates a truth, traditionally called a parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector or the publican and the sinner. I'm going to refer to the two characters in our story as the religious man and the tax man. Okay, religious man and the tax man. Let's start with the context. Let's start with the context. This was Jesus' target. Who, who was Jesus talking to? And how does it apply to me? What difference does it make? We get to the end of every message and we say, so what? What difference does it make? First, Jesus told this parable, the target, to those who, letter A, trusted in themselves. They trusted in themselves. He was speaking to the confident, the self-sufficient, those who do not need anything. They don't really need God, or at least they don't think they need God. People who are just self-sufficient. On a personal level, some people on a personal level are right where this guy was. We, we run our own lives. Everything's fine. I have a good job. I have enough money. I work hard. I'm a nice person. Everyone likes and gets along with. I have no needs. I'm, I'm pretty independent. Tends to be the American way. As a church, we program, we organize, we raise money, we start ministries, we're busy, we have a great level of activity, everything's going well, and sometimes we forget that as a church, we need God. As I said last Sunday, the mission of most churches is pay the bills, and as long as you pay the bills, the mission's good. We can have church if God shows up or not. Question is, do we meet with God when we come together? We'll pray for needs out there, but what about us? We, we don't seem to need God. Or as a nation, our money reads, in God we trust. It's a, a quaint, outdated phrase. We fought the war of independence. We're a nation that prides itself in self-sufficiency. Then we wake up one day and find our courts, schools, and nation have been taken over by radical militant activists who want to eliminate the God-created, scientifically viable difference between the sexes. And we all of a sudden say, what in the world happened? Yes, it's us, America, that Jesus is talking to, those who trust in themselves. Second, Jesus is speaking to those who Letter B, thought they were righteous. They thought they were righteous. Verse 9 says, they were confident of their own righteousness. Self-righteous. Or the message says, those pleased with themselves over their moral performance. I like that. Pleased with themselves over their moral performance. Most people in America today believe that human beings are eh, basically good. And if left to their own devices, we can just, we can create that utopia we've always wanted. It's naive, but widespread. Events around the world today paint a very, very different picture. Even, but even in the Christian community, we like to view ourselves as righteous. And in Jesus Christ, we are righteous when, when we 
ask for Jesus to come into our lives and forgive our sins, then God sees us as perfect, sinless, and righteous. So in that sense, yes, we are righteous. But remember, Jesus is speaking to religious people, the church leaders of his day. Personally, how good do I think I am? As Americans, are we pleased with our moral performance? Thirdly, Jesus is speaking to those who viewed others with contempt. Viewed others with contempt. They looked down on everybody else. Now, we don't go out and look for people to put down. We're too sophisticated for that. It's not politically correct to do that. So we never would have any kind of impression that we looked down on people. But there is a subtle and insidious problem that flows out of self-sufficiency and self-righteousness. Self-sufficiency and self-righteousness produces the tendency to look down on other people. With this arrogance of self-righteousness and contempt, it's doubtful that God will actually answer prayers because prayer power is released by humility and recognition of need. Need. Lloyd Ogilvy writes, he said, the problem is not just our prayers, but the dominant focus of our total life. It's not just about prayer. It's about the focus of our life. That's the context. That's who Jesus was telling that to. Now, let's look at the contrast. Let's look at the contrast. In this context, this setting, two guys decide to pray. Both were Jews. Both wanted to pray. And both addressed God. Okay? Jews, they wanted to pray God. But the similarity ends there. Let's look, first of all, at the religious man. Religious man. Let's start with this posture. Body language can tell us a lot about a person's attitude. His posture, he stood. Now, there's nothing wrong with praying standing up. Okay? There are a lot of postures we can have praying. We can stand, we can sit, we can kneel, we can lay down, we can walk, we can drive with our eyes open, hopefully, and all that we can do while we pray. Standing was, was a common Jewish posture for prayer, but the word suggests an attitude, an attitude. Now, when I first graduated from college, um, I taught high school band and choir. And I would have my students, those of you that work with the students, you know that, that when you say, would you guys please stand, uh, they have all kinds of different postures. They would stand. There was the reluctant slouch, the rebellious stance, and then there's the eager lean. Now, you can look at the way anybody stands, and you can tell their attitude. And, and the word Jesus uses suggests it's standing with an attitude. So he stood to pray, but he had an attitude. He was standing ostentiously. He was standing in order to be seen. This man wanted to look religious. He wanted to look good. He wanted people to notice. And that was his posture. So this word standing was, look at me. I'm spiritual. I'm praying. So what was his prayer? His prayer. First, he prayed about himself. This man was not praying to himself inaudibly or silent, like a student who prays before they take a, an exam at school. This, this guy wasn't talking to God. He was talking to himself. He was reciting his virtues. And the question is, when we pray, are we talking to God or just talking to ourselves? 
It was also as comparative, comparative. And it's interesting. He says, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evil, doers, and adulterers, or this tax man over here. Comparative. Today's version would be, God, I thank you that I'm not like the pimps and the prostitutes and the exotic dancers and drug dealers and alcoholics, criminals, or like my neighbor who never goes to church. He's out mowing his lawn on Sunday. I'm not like him. Comparisons. Well, we're comparing ourselves to the wrong standard. God's standards are perfection and total righteousness, and all of us, all of us fail at that standard. We have no reason to look down on anybody. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3 says, there's none righteous, not even one. We, we, we can always find somebody that's worse than us, okay? But do we want our prayers to work? Not focusing on comparisons. It was also, letter C, it was based on externals. What I don't do and what I do. This guy was talking about what he had done, not what he was, okay? It wasn't about being, it was about doing. We don't become what we do. We do because of what we are. Let me say that again. We don't become what we do. We do because of what we are. Another way to put that is we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. It's part of our nature. We are not sinners because we sin. It's not dependent on what we do. We sin because we're sinners. It's part of our nature. And so, so there's no cause for arrogance in all of this. And God does not base his relationship with us on externals. Now, we, we do to some point, but externals are really unimportant. Unimportant. What happens when a marriage relationship is based on externals? Youth and beauty. Youth and beauty. What happens? Uh, gravity. Gravity happens. We're all aging. It, it just doesn't last. We were talking before in the prayer room. You probably wonder what we do in the green room or the blue room, whatever it is, before we come out. Well, we are looking at two, two of the guys in the worship team have these really nice beards with just a little bit of gray. It looks really sophisticated. And I said, you know, I was on vacation a few years back and decided to grow my beard out. And I said, no, that's coming off. And that makes me, it's all gray. And so, but externals, you know, when you age, things happen. Sooner or later, we get wrinkles. I have to watch and laugh some of the news commentators when, if they smile big or laugh, they have wrinkles in different parts of their face. And so you watch commentators when they're doing the news, watch them. They work really hard at keeping the broadcast pucker. You know, they don't want any wrinkles to show because that, it's externals. Well, we're going to all have wrinkles. Some of us will gain weight. Our hair turns gray or makes an exit, whatever. Some sooner, some later. But we don't base our closest relationships, or we ought not to, base it on externals. Then why do we try to do that with God? We cannot base our relationship on what we do or don't do. It's on what we are, who we are. Fourthly, this man's prayer was prideful, prideful. Pride twists our capacity for self-scrutiny and, and inward looking. 
It's possible to delude ourselves into thinking we're right with God because of our goodness or our accomplishments. Lloyd Ogilvy writes, the purpose of prayer is to see things as they really are. See things as they really are. Ourselves as we really are and God as he has revealed himself to be. The true person inside when we pray, just open ourselves up to God and pray. Our hopes, dreams, failures, sins, missed opportunities and potential. Pride can distort everything. And five, this man's prayer lacked humility, lacked humility. He was thankful to God for his own virtues, not God's mercies to him. And this kind of prayer, incidentally, was quite common in that day. The Pharisees had written prayers to thank God that, I thank God I'm a Jew and not a Gentile. I thank God I'm a Pharisee and not a common person. I thank God I'm a man and not a woman. I'm serious. They had prayers, written prayers, just like that. He came up just short of congratulating God on how great he was. The Pharisee, one writer says, glances at God but contemplates himself. He glances at God but contemplates himself. Authentic humility asks three questions. What do I have that I was not given? Do I have anything that I wasn't given? Who am I really? And then what are the next steps of adventure of growth for me? This man did not need God to help him accomplish his limited view of righteousness. His opening word was to God, but never again. He himself is never out of the picture. In true prayer, we are out of the picture, and God is at the center. He who needs no one humbled himself in creating us that he might love and be loved. Humility is seeing things exactly as they are. Jesus is and was humble. He expressed nothing less from his people. So that's the kind of prayer God won't answer. Okay? That's not going to work. Attitude of self-righteousness, self-sufficiency, and pride. That's the religious man. Okay? We can all learn something from the religious man. Now, let's look at the tax man. The tax man. In verse 13, he says... He stood up at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. What was his posture? His posture is that he stood at a distance. The message says he slumped in the shadows. This man had a sense of unworthiness and humility. He didn't feel God owes me or I've earned it. He had a sense of who God truly was and who he really was. The tax man was an unlikely candidate for religious exercises. He stood at a distance. He bowed his head. Secondly, he wouldn't even look to heaven. There was nothing wrong with lifting our heads or eyes open or closed in prayer. But this showed his attitude. Should we be afraid in approaching God? Some people say, I, I think we need to be more afraid of approaching God. No, we shouldn't be afraid. We should be respectful, but not afraid. There's a balance. Hebrews 4.16 says this. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence. Oh, confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. 
But the confidence when we approach the throne of grace, the confidence in, isn't in us. It's confident in God. Confident in God's grace, God's love, God's acceptance, God's desire to help, and God's power to help. But do not forget who we are and who God is. Then he expressed sorrow and great regret, letter C. Says he beat his breast. It's a sign of sorrow. By his physical posture, his physical actions, we can see this man's true heart. Humility, sorrow, and need, and true repentance for his sin. That was the posture. What was his prayer? God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Be merciful, or let the cause of my schism or enmity between you and me be removed. Let your anger, God, be removed. God, be merciful to me. This man recognizes what he deserves. He was rotten and he knew it. He asked for mercy because that's all he dared ask for. And I believe he was truly in the presence of God because when we come close to God, the contrast between how incredibly holy he is and how earthly we are as sinners reveals that and we are moved. Humility, God be merciful to me. The closer we get to God, the greater is our need for him. Do you feel that way today? If you do, God, God will hear your prayer. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. The Pharisee thought of all the other people as sinners. A tax man thinks of himself alone as a sinner, not thinking about other people at all. So what is the conclusion of this? How does the story end? Verse 14, Jesus says, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. God answered his prayer. The tax man was justified. The religious man, not. Tax man justified, religious man not. Now the word justified, it's interesting when you look at the grammatical structure of the word justified. Just justify means to declare not guilty, to be totally innocent. He was justified. And it's, it's in the perfect passive participle. I know you were wondering what grammatical structure that is. The perfect passive participle. Passive means that it's something done outside of self. It's something God does for us. He was justified. God justified him. He didn't do anything to earn it. It says God justified him. It's also, it's in the perfect tense, which means it happened in the past, and it has present ongoing results. So God, in his own action, justified, declared him not guilty, and the results carried on all the way through to the present and the future. Justified. He was reckoned, reckoned as righteous, acquitted of his sin. This is God's action, not ours. We celebrate a communion, that the shed blood of Jesus. That, that's God's action. It's not that we somehow sacrifice something and do this ritual of communion. It's that God's act of shedding his blood justified us, and we are righteous now in his sight. We can't earn it. We can only accept it. 
And he said, there are two options. He said, exalt yourself and be humbled or humble yourself and be exalted. The tax man did not earn forgiveness by his prayer of humility either. He didn't earn it because he was so humble. That's some of the things we say, if I'm just more humble, maybe I'll, God will accept me. No, that's not what it's about. He didn't earn forgiveness by his prayer of humility either. It'd be the same error as the Pharisee. Instead, it was confession of sin, and God forgave. And we see God's comparison. He said, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. There is the principle behind answered prayer. Prayer that works. Religious man or the tax man? Which one are you? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you give us pointed examples and great stories about who we are and that you desire to answer prayer. And Father, I would venture to guess that there's not one person here that doesn't have some prayer that needs answered. And Father, whether it's a concern for individual or family or finances or health or a concern for our nation, whatever that is, God, that you, by your grace, want to answer prayer. And I pray that as we humble ourselves individually and as a church and we pray, we know that you, God, will hear from heaven and you will answer. And we thank you. Let's stand, shall we?